The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. One thing that I think that we all have in common is that we all enjoy a compliment from time to time, no matter what it's about, whether it's from our boss at work or from a teacher at school or from our parents or grandparents or from a coach or a fellow teammate or or a fellow employee, whatever it may be, I think that we have our days brightened up when we receive a compliment from someone else. It makes us feel good. And concerning the exhortation we're to offer each other as members of the one body, compliments sometimes are a good way of doing that. Maybe complimenting a babe in Christ for the good he or she has done or the the thing that they have recently learned or a comment in class that was a good comment if indeed it was a good comment there are just things that we can do to encourage each other and and compliments can be one of those things we all have that in common but really when you think about it a compliment is only as valuable as the source from which it comes in psalm 5 and verse 9 speaking of the dishonest and sinful people the psalmist writes there is no faithfulness in their mouth Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. And so there are some people that just aren't very genuine. They're not truthful about what they say. They may brag about themselves and things that they claim to have done in the past when in reality they're just lying. And they may try to flatter with their tongue. They may try to lead people to believe that they actually see a value in them and they're just trying to do that for dishonest gain. And a compliment from such a person really is of very little value. I think this is why the Apostle Paul defended himself from time to time in his ministry. Because he did give out a lot of compliments. He praised brethren for their faithfulness. He encouraged them in their walk with Jesus. And we see him defend himself from such fake compliments and flattery in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. He said, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. And so certainly we need to be those who hand out genuine compliments. If we're complimenting someone, it needs to be out of a heart that is genuine, not just flattering for dishonest gain or whatever it may be. But certainly we look for compliments from men, not in a way that is false but in a way that is heartfelt and sincere. And because of that, the best compliments you would ever think to receive would come from Jesus. He knows who we are. He knows our hearts. And so his compliments are not just kind of to sway us in any general direction. He's not trying to take advantage of someone that he compliments. He's certainly not just kind of throwing out... uh, comments and compliments that bear no weight and are invalid he doesn't flatter with his speech in john 2 and verse 23 speaking of jesus's ministry it says when he was in jerusalem at the passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did but jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in a man simply illustrating the deity of christ and the fact that he knows all things we might remember when seeking the replacement and the apostleship of Judas Iscariot in Acts one twenty four, they prayed to the Lord who knows the hearts of all to show 
which of these two he had chosen. Because Jesus knows our hearts, because Jesus knows all men and what they truly are inside, when he gave a compliment, it was legitimate and it was of great value. And it stands to reason that if we read in Scripture that Jesus gives a compliment to an individual based on their character or work that they performed, that we would do well to follow and imitate the example of that individual And thus we would be pleasing to God ourselves. So what I want to do this evening is consider some very valuable comments which emanated from the mouth of the Lord himself concerning some things that some people who are his disciples did. And we can learn from those characters and their characteristics they displayed. I want us to notice first in John the first chapter and verse 47 at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry He came across a man named Nathanael. And in John 1 and verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Indeed, that was a great compliment. An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. We might wonder, though, what Jesus meant by that. I think it's very certain by those words, before we even know much detail about it. An Israelite, indeed, would speak to the genuineness of Nathaniel. He's not fake, as we might describe someone who comes across in a way that seems as though they were spiritual, but in reality, they're hypocrites. He's an Israelite, indeed. That was a common problem among those of the children of Israel. In Romans 9 and verse 6, when the Apostle Paul is arguing for the justice justice of God and his righteousness and rejecting the Israelite nation that are his physical people and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He says this of the promises of the Old Testament, that it is not that the word of God is taken of no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And he goes on to show that those who are of the promise are the true Israel. Galatians 6 and verse 16, the apostle Paul said, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. There was the Israel that was physical Israel, who was no longer the Israel of God. But then there were those who were of spiritual Israel, who were the spirit, the Israel of God. The rule that he talked about was in verse 15 of Galatians 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And it stands to reason that those who were truly the Israel of God were those who had a change of heart, who had a new creation, not in the flesh, but in, in the spirit. It wasn't about circumcision of the flesh, but in truth, circumcision of the heart. We read a little bit about that in Romans, the second chapter, in verse 25, beginning. The Apostle Paul shows the sin of the Jews and their hypocrisy and inconsistency as the people of God. He said, circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God." He was showing them the true individuals who were of God's covenant people. It didn't matter that they were simply born into the nation of Israel and circumcised in the flesh on the eighth day according to the law if they didn't keep their end of the covenant, end of the bargain. It was an agreement between God and the Israelites, but it bore great weight in a spiritual manner. 
And if they were circumcised in the flesh, but were not faithful to God, then they weren't truly a part of his covenant. They would not receive the promises. The New Testament goes on, as Romans 9 indicates, to demonstrate that only a remnant among God's physical nation would be saved. And it would be those who were not simply circumcised in the flesh, but circumcised in their hearts that were truly a people of God, an Israelite indeed, and Nathaniel's genuineness is noted by Jesus. We can see it in the context. Notice, if you will, back in verse 45 of John chapter 1. Concerning Jesus and his coming into the scene, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael, being an Israelite, understood the great importance of this statement that the Messiah is here. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. We pause there. And what we see is impressive, first of all, in the genuine faith of Nathanael, because, or at least in the start of his faith, as it's starting to, its inception, it's starting to come onto the scene, that most Israelites we read about, especially of the Pharisees and the Jewish rulers of the New Testament, when they heard something about Jesus, who is the Christ, that did not line up and fit with their view of Jesus. They just rejected him. When they heard him speak of a spiritual kingdom instead of a physical, they rejected him. When they heard that he claimed to be the son of God in addition to the son of David, they rejected him. They didn't want to hear his understanding of the Messiah, which was true. They had their own understanding and held on to it. And so when Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's obvious that this idea that the Messiah would come from such a lowly place as Nazareth did not fit with his perspective and idea of the Messiah. But what he didn't do is stop there and reject Jesus simply on that basis. Philip said, come and see. So Nathanael coming toward Jesus said of him, uh, Jesus saw him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no no deceit. He's already showing some genuine interest in the spiritual matters and in the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah by not rejecting Jesus simply based on the fact of where he came, but investigating it further. And notice, as we continue, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? They had never met. And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. How would Jesus have known that? And that's the idea that popped into Nathanael's head. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And notice this, what Jesus said. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you'll see greater things than these. Jesus would later in the Gospel of John raise Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead four days. And there would still be some who rejected him. He's saying, Nathaniel, you're going to see even greater matters than these. You simply came to this realization that I must be who I claim to be because of this miraculous knowledge. Obviously, Nathaniel was genuine. Indeed, he was an Israelite. He was a person of God. He was a child of God, not just in the flesh, but especially and more importantly in the spirit. He looked truly and sincerely for the coming of the Messiah. And when he came, although that some of the things didn't add up to Nathaniel at the time, he came from Nazareth. He saw that the proof was in the pudding and accepted Jesus as the Christ. You know, we're called to a similar thing. Our faith needs to be genuine. We need to be a Christian indeed as Nathaniel was an Israelite indeed. It's the whole purpose of the gospel being revealed to us, to produce in us love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and from sincere faith, as we read in 1 Timothy 1.5. 
Our faith needs to be sincere. It can't be a facade. It can't be a show that we're putting on. It's got to be a sincere conviction. And that would stand to reason that it's got to be our faith, not the faith of our father or our mother, the faith of our sibling, the faith of our family member, whoever it may be. Our faith stands alone. It's ours and it has to be legitimate. It has to be genuine. It has to be sincere. We can't just fill the seats. We can't wear the name Christian and then act in different ways. It's got to be genuine because in the end, we'll be shown who we truly are. Speaking of the judgment of the word in the end, in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, giving warning to the Hebrews there, the Hebrew writer says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In the end, the word of God is going to cut through the front that we may be putting on. It's going to show that we're either insincere in the innermost recesses of our mind or whether we are truly indeed genuine Christians. A lot of individuals in the end will see their sad conviction in the judgment when they are shown as fraudulent Christians. They were always just going through the motions. They never really wore the conviction of a Christian they simply acted the part. Are we going through the motions or could Jesus accurately compliment our faith like he did Nathaniel? Behold, a Christian indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That word meaning baked, literally. It's like a fisherman putting forth something that appears like a, a true piece of food to the fish, but in reality it's fake. It's made for the catching. Are we putting something out there that's fake? Or are we genuine in our faith? Jesus complimented Nathaniel for his genuineness, and we need to seek the same. Going to Matthew, the 8th chapter, we see Jesus hand out another compliment. And it's one I think we're familiar with, with the Roman centurion and the great faith that he exhibited. In Matthew 8 and verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus gave him a great compliment and it involved his great faith that he displayed. It wasn't simply that he just believed. There were qualities of his faith that are of great importance in this passage. I want us to understand first that obviously he had understood from news elsewhere that this man Jesus had some kind of ability to perform miracles. Jesus was at the point in his ministry where he was seeking, as we see before in his healing of a leper, to not let the news spread. It wasn't his time. He didn't want people to take him and try to make him king by force like we see in John 6. And he certainly didn't want people to try to plot to kill him. It was too early for that. It wasn't his time yet. And so he is trying to make sure that the news didn't spread as fast, although not everyone listened to him. And that's what happened with the man cleansed of his leprosy. He told people, regardless of Jesus's command not to. So news had gotten about in the place and Jesus's face Faith or his fame had had spread and grown, and this 
Roman centurion obviously had heard of him, and he believed that Jesus did indeed have the ability. But then he had some understandings of why Jesus had the ability to heal as he did. He had an understanding that Jesus came with authority, that if he was able to tell that leper to be healed and his leprosy was no more, or that one who is paralyzed to be healed and he was no longer a paralytic and he could walk, that Jesus had some kind of power or authority over all material things. That's exactly what we see Jesus display throughout his ministry. Mark 2 comes to mind in verse 10 when he heals that man of paralysis and he first told him that his sins are forgiven him. The Pharisees questioned that. So he said that you may know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he did. That word power is the Greek word exosia, which is authority. He is showing he has authority to forgive sins by demonstrating his authority to heal maladies. He has authority over the nature that he created himself. And the centurion made that connection. It's an ability which comes from nothing other than supreme authority. He has authority over nature. But then he understood some implications of the fact of someone that has authority. That you don't have to be present. The president have, doesn't have to be in the room when he makes a command concerning specific things. He just signs an executive order he, he, where he sends a, a delegate to, to carry forth that order or command. He doesn't have to be present in the room. It wouldn't work very well if a man with authority had to be physically present every time he handed out an order. That's not how authority works. When one with authority says it is done, and it's done without question, and that's what the Roman centurion understood, himself being a man of authority. Only speak a word, he says, and since you have that authority, my servant will be healed. You don't have to go there. That's not how authority works. If you really have authority over nature, and this man was convicted that Jesus did, all you have to do is say so. That's how creation occurred. Psalm 33 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, For he spoke, and it was done, and commanded, and it stood fast. And in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 8, we know that his faith was not misplaced. Verse 13 says, Jesus said to him, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. All Jesus has to do is say the word, and his word is carried out. He showed that in his healings, and he demonstrates that in his word. That's the quality of faith in Christ we need to possess. We need to have faith that he indeed is able to forgive us of our sins. He can cleanse us of our sins. That's why the Gospels are recorded. John 20 shows us the reason for the record of these signs and miracles. Many are, are done, but, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. For what purpose, though? And that believing you may have life in his name. And it's important to note this, that it causes us to come to the con conviction and conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. But what that does is it shows that he has authority and in his name we may have life. That being a phrase of authority. That's what Peter said in Acts 4 and verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And our faith has to be like the centurion. We know that by Jesus' authority, we can be saved. But what we understand about authority is that it requires action. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? And he tells us by the pen that is inspired of Paul, whatever you do in word and deed, 
Do all in the name of the Lord. But why? Because that's the fullness of God, chapter 2 showed. And if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. And that includes verse 17, doing all in his name. Why? Because that's the only way we'll receive salvation. Remember what the centurion said in his understanding about authority and his application to Jesus? If you do have that authority, you don't even have to go. All you have to do is say, and it will be done. Now, the only other factor that comes into this that is different is our free will. So often Jesus says, and it is not done, but that's because no one has faith in his authority to do so, those who rebel in that way. If we have faith as the centurion, we won't hesitate when Jesus says we will do, much like Peter in Luke 5, in verses 4 and 5, when Jesus said, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. That needs to be our only reply. At your word, I will. The faith that is commendable before God is not simply one that believes Jesus has those powerful, miraculous, eternal abilities, but that understands because of that, at his word, I will do. He has the power. He has the authority. Who am I to question the almighty son of God? And so we can learn from the great faith of the Roman centurion. Thirdly, we see in Matthew 11, a compliment handed out by Jesus to John the Baptist. In Matthew 11 and in verse 11, he says of John the Baptist, him not being present, but he says of John the Baptist, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We've got to investigate the context to really understand what Jesus is speaking of. And what he's doing here in Matthew chapter 11 is he's validating John's ministry. As we see in verse 18, not all would accept John's preaching that John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon, and the Son of Man came in the exact op opposite way, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so they say, we're not going to accept John on the, the count of his austere lifestyle, and Jesus comes with an opposite lifestyle of being in public and being in the city and being around the people and being sociable, and yet that's still not good enough. And the problem was they rejected the prophet's message and thus rejected the prophet. And so what John is being shown to be by Jesus is a legitimate prophet of those born of women. All the prophets before, just like Moses, you could say Abraham, Elijah, all the prophets that the Jews looked up to, but they rejected John. Jesus is saying there's not one that's greater than him. Not necessarily that he's absolutely the greatest, but that none are greater than him. He's teaching the word of God. In verses two through six, John sent some disciples of his to Jesus. He was in prison at the time and he sent them with these words. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And it wasn't that John didn't believe. We remember at the beginning of his ministry, he pointed out that Jesus is the Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one I'm talking about. But we all know in John chapter three that the disciples of John disputed Jesus's validity. They saw him baptizing and they claimed, uh, complained to John and John 326, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all, all are coming to him, as if thinking he shouldn't be able to do this. That's your place, John. And he goes on to show them that Jesus is indeed one that has the ability and the authority to do so. And he must come to the forefront 
and I must recede to the background. This essentially was John not in doubt, but in seeking to validate Jesus himself and therefore support the disciples of himself, their faith in the Messiah. And Jesus showed that he was indeed the Messiah when he said, go and tell him all of these miracles that are being performed. But then Jesus goes on in verses 7 through 15 to talk about John as a man and as a prophet. He says to the people in verse 7, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a a timid man that is easily moved and swayed? No, he's in prison because he convicted Herod, the king of sin. He wasn't going to be moved. He's preaching the word of God. But notice verse 8. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's saying you went out into the wilderness, and it's obvious your expectations were different than the reality of the Old Testament prophecies. Especially note verse 8. Do you expect to see one that was clothed in luxurious attire? That's not John's prophetic appointment. What he did as a prophet was not only do what Jesus and what God in the Old Testament prophesied for him to do, what he was appointed to do, pave the way of the Lord, but he did it in a spirit of humility. It was prophesied of him that he would be a humble man. And John chapter, or rather Mark 1 and verse 6, we read of his countenance, not of soft clothing like of a king's palace, but he was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Jesus is showing that his prophetic ministry was great, greater than any other prophet. Among him or among women, not one is born that is greater than John the Baptist. But in his greatness of ministry and in his fulfillment and execution of his ministry, he maintained a spirit of humility. It would have been easy for John to come out into the forefront and show how he was so important. He was that one from Malachi 3, 1 that was prophesied about, preparing the way for the very Messiah that we look forward to. How great am I? But he didn't. He maintained his humble position that he was called to. We see that in the very words of John in John 3 and verse 27. Remember back that we looked at the disciples of John disputed about Jesus and complained to John about him. John responded with these words. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the voice of the bridegroom or the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Notice this. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus showed the greatness of John's ministry as a prophet so that those who were rejecting him could understand that he's no less than any of the prophets of old. And what he's saying is true. Don't reject him. Those who rejected him would go on to reject Jesus. But not only that, I think there's a tone of the compliment of Jesus that speaks to John's humility. So often in Scripture, Jesus shows that the greatness in his eyes and his father's eyes comes with humility. The ones who are great in the kingdom are those who are humble. And that was part of John and his ministry. That's what was so impressive about John is that he humbled himself in the sight of the Lord and simply did no less and no more what he was appointed to do. 
and we could learn from that. Jesus complimented him for his great humility and his greatness in carrying out his appointment, and we would do well to do the same. Notice back in Matthew 11 and verse 11, it says that he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Certainly because while John prophesied of the way of the Lord and the kingdom of the Lord, we are experiencing that kingdom. John didn't get that privilege. But also in humility, John became great. And how much more so those who are a part of the kingdom of the Lord. As we previously studied in another lesson in Matthew 18, 3, Jesus speaks to greatness in the kingdom saying, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what John exhibited. He must increase, but I must decrease. We're to be those of a humble disposition and submit to the Lord. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, Peter says by inspiration, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And that exaltation is seen in verse 10 that we are called to his eternal glory. And so we must humble ourselves and be like John and the other people of humility that we read of in the New Testament. Are we living to promote Christ or ourselves? Is Christ living in us or are we living our own lives without his direction? Are we arrogant and prideful or are we humble before the Lord and for each other? John was complimented on his humility in part and we would be complimented as well if we followed his example. Fourthly, we see a compliment in Mark, the 12th chapter, about the liberality of the poor widow. In verse 41, we read a familiar text that Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Her great liberality is complimented by Christ. And we notice why in the proportion of the widow's offering. First, he says that she put in out of her poverty. She didn't have an abundance. But secondly, she put in all that she had, her livelihood, where these rich individuals may have had savings that they took and put into the treasury, she took from what she needed to live day by day with and put that in to the treasury. And so it wasn't her monetary value that was exemplified and was commented on by Jesus, but the proportion of her giving compared to the others. And out of that, the spirit of liberality and love for God's will, her, his cause and her self-denial and sincerity that was expressed in such giving. This after the fact of Jesus condemning those who devour widows' houses in verse 40 and for a pretense make long prayers. He says these will receive greater condemnation. Those of the scribes and Pharisees exploited the people and took from them. And yet this poor widow gave all that she had to the Lord's cause. We obviously need that same spirit in our giving to God. And there's New Testament examples of this in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul gave the Macedonians as an example to the Corinthians in their giving. The contribution on the first day of the week was being collected so that it could be sent to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he didn't want them to be stingy. He wanted them to give in liberality. So he gave the Macedonians as an example. We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. 
that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They gave out of their poverty and they gave liberally. They gave beyond what was expected of them and they did it out of love and eagerness to serve in that capacity in the kingdom. I want us to consider furthermore some of the characteristics of our giving that are displayed in the ninth chapter when he applies that example to the Corinthians themselves. He says in verse 5, he thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand. Notice why which you have previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. Could Christ compliment our giving based on it being out of a sincerity and generosity, or are we giving with a grudging obligation? He goes on to say, This I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Are we giving bountifully? Would Christ compliment us on such? Verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Are we just taking whatever is in our pocket on Sunday morning and giving to the Lord, or is it purposed? Have we made a purpose? Have we made a plan? And is it out of a cheerfulness? He says in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. He goes on to explain a little further that the whole reason God blesses us with physical things, money, is so that we can be liberal in our giving. Would Christ be able to compliment us on our giving? I want us to note also the proportion in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. There is a question that is often had. How much should I give? What does God expect of us? Well, under the Old Testament, they tithed, and that was a 10% of all they had. And we're not under the Old Testament, so what do I give? Do I have to give 10%? We know under the Old Testament that they were given 10% as a command, but they also gave more. They, they gave above and beyond. They didn't just give the 10%. Those who were truly faithful were giving more. They went above and beyond, and we could learn from that. But I want us to notice what is pointed out in 1 Corinthians 16 too, concerning the collection. Paul said, on the first day of the week, let each one lay of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. That speaks to the frequency of the giving. When we prosper, we take some of what we prosper and give to the Lord. It may be weekly, it may be bi-weekly, it may be monthly, but when we receive a paycheck, we take off the top what belongs to the Lord, but also in proportion to what you have prospered, which means while we're giving out of our heart, that what you make may be more or less than what I make, so our giving may be different. It's in proportion to what we have and what we're blessed with. And God knows. And he knows the, the percentage, for lack of a better description, of what you're giving out of, out of what he's blessed you. And, and could it rightly be said that that's out of liberality and generosity? And are we doing it out of cheerfulness? Could Christ compliment you? Certainly we're not saying and the scripture does not reveal that we need to give all that we have like the widow. But do we express the same spirit the widow had of such liberality and eagerness to contribute to the work of the church and our money? You know, though, we could apply this to any kind of giving we're commanded by the Lord, not just monetarily in the contribution on the first day of the week, but 
giving of ourselves, as the Macedonians proved to do first and foremost in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 8. They gave themselves and then to the Lord. And so are we giving all that we can give? Are we being stingy with our lives? Or are we serving God in the capacity that we are able to serve? Or can we give more of ourselves? Would Christ compliment us on our giving in a monetary fashion and in a fashion of faithfulness and service? Lastly, I want us to look in Mark 14 to the compliment God gave Mary in her devotion. We know it's Mary from the parallel passage and account in John chapter 12, which seems to be very clearly speaking of the same moment, especially as it pertains to the same point in Jesus' ministry and the same language that is seen there. In Mark 14, 3, though, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table, and a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard, and she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves, saying, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do, good, do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come before to anoint beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Notice this, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. She's done a good work. He commended her. He complimented her action. And then it was so important to him and so impressive to him that he made sure it was recorded in the gospel for all to hear and see. 2,000 plus years later, we read of it, and certainly her action and her name lives on in the good news of Jesus Christ. I want us to notice a few things from this. Her good work. We may wonder why she did this to begin with. James Fawson and Brown comment on this verse, saying that the only use of this was to refresh and exhilarate a grateful compliment in the East amid the closeness of a heated atmosphere with many guests at a feast. Such was the form in which Mary's love to Christ at so much cost to herself poured itself out. It was not that she knew that Jesus would be buried. Even though he spoke of his death, none of the disciples fully comprehended that. Certainly not Mary, but that's how Christ took it. He knows what's about to happen. And she may have done it just as a simple matter of hospitality and an expression of her love and devotion toward him. And it cost her great amount. It was a very costly oil of spikenard. And it showed her love and devotion. And he took it as a preparation for her burial. Others complained about it, suggesting it could have been used for something else. Certainly, that being out of dishonesty and covetousness themselves. But Jesus showed how wonderful it was in giving her that great compliment and putting her forth as an example in his gospel. Notice, though, what is said of her by Jesus, that she did what she could do. That's impressive, that Jesus would compliment a woman for simply doing what she could do. It's not that Mary took this costly oil of spikenard and think this oil is too expensive for Jesus, like the others were thinking. And she didn't take this oil of spikenard and say, as expensive as it is, it's not enough for Jesus. She just did what she could do. And Jesus said, that's enough. In fact, that's a great deal. And he complimented her for that. This idea of Mary doing what she could do and its application is not an idea of simply encouraging us to do something, no matter how minimal it is. It's an encouragement to examine self to discover what you can do 
and then in our past doings, examine ourselves to see if there's more than we can do. And what Jesus does not require of us is more than what we can do, but he certainly wants us to not do as little as possible. He simply wants us to do what we can do. Many churches have gotten themselves in so much trouble thinking that they need to give their money to a sponsoring church in order to carry out further work because they don't have enough to do it themselves or to send that to some human institution. What they're trying to do is more than what they're able. But Jesus compliments those who do what they can do no more and no less. We need to take action as Mary did. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, it says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. But the point is, you've got to sow to reap. And so we don't sit there and think this isn't enough or it's too much. We do what we can do. We sow and then we will reap. I want us to notice that in the parable of the talents. We remember that story as Jesus told it in verse 15. To one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one. And we notice the reason for the differentiation in the amounts to each one according to his ability. He gives according to our ability. That is, he doesn't expect us to do more than what is our ability to do, but he expects us to discover that ability and be honest with him and with ourselves and do what we can. Verse 26, the one that was given one didn't do what he could. Matthew 25 and 26, the Lord answered to him and said, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I did not scatter seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. I gave you only what you're able to take care of and to handle, but you didn't do what you could do. He didn't condemn him for not doing as much as the one given five talents or as much as the one given two talents. You didn't do what you could do. And because of that, he was condemned. We need not look for compliments for more than what we're able, but simply do what is our duty to do as God's servants. And then we will receive such compliment in the end, like we read in verse 23 of this parable. The Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We read of Jesus giving out five compliments in our study this evening. And that's the compliment. Well done, good and faithful servant that we should all be looking for as we live this life on earth. In the end, our thoughts and our reasons will be exposed like we read in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And then the true compliment will come. The only compliment that matters. Will we be complimented by Jesus in the end like these people were complimented on earth? We can follow their example and ensure that we will be seen as a commendable person to Christ and he will enter, uh, welcome us into his rest in the end. If you're here this evening and not obeyed the gospel, we want to extend that invitation to you to simply put on Christ in a spirit of humility and become great as a child of the kingdom, understanding that without Christ, you can do nothing. You can do that this evening, and we urge you to do so. We plead with you to do so, and we encourage you to do so. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with tonight, we also encourage you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.